Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture has been written for our learning, and so we pray now by your Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed, changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Is there hope for Ninevites? Is there hope for those who live in Nineveh? As we continue our walk through the book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 3 this morning, I've got to ask the question, is there hope for Ninevites? A people who in chapter 1 of Jonah, we're told in verse, chapter 1 verse 2, that this is a people, the people of Nineveh, whose evil has come up before the Lord. An evil people. An evil nation. And we're told in chapter 4, verse 11, next Sunday's text, that this is a people that did not know their left hand from the right hand. Not just an evil people, but an ignorant people. Is there hope for Ninevites? For an evil and ignorant people? Well, hear these words from Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah began to enter into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as I was working on this Sunday's text, as I was preparing for this whole sermon series on Jonah, I have been struggling for some time to figure out how do I translate Jonah's message for the Ninevites into our world today? How do we effectively and winsomely take that message into the Ninevehs of our world? How do we go before the world saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned? I thought maybe we need to put a repent or burn sign up on the street. Or maybe change our entire vacation Bible school curriculum and just terrify the kids this week about imminent disaster coming. But then I realized I'm not Jonah in this story, and neither are you. I'm a Ninevite, and you're a Ninevite. See, the story is not about what message do we take into the world. That's another sermon for another time. The message here in Jonah 3 is, what is it like to be a Ninevite living in Nineveh and to have God's message enter into our lives? See, there is hope for Ninevites. Oh, there is great hope for Ninevites we see here in chapter 3 of Jonah. If you turn there with me, here's the hope we see for Ninevites. That though we are living as Ninevites in Nineveh, God confronts us. 
God has a message that comes to confront us while we are living like Ninevites in Nineveh. God confronts us. And that's hard to hear, I know. But trust me, it's for the good because here's what we see in Jonah 3. God comes and confronts us when we're living as Ninevites in Nineveh. That sounded weird. We're living like Ninevites in Nineveh. God confronts us in order to change us, to transform us. But here's the amazing thing of this message of hope. This confrontation that's going to change us, here's how it happens. God comes to Nineveh. God comes to us. God enters the city where we live. He enters the place where we are. He is here to make a change. He has come. See, first we have to begin with the fact that God confronts us when we are living in Nineveh, living like Ninevites. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. The message of Jonah, the message the Lord gave Jonah. He goes through the city saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in the Hebrew. It's a tiny micro message. He's so precise. And some of you perhaps wish that I could be so precise. You know, I realized that two Sundays ago when I last preached on Jonah chapter two, I preached for 35 minutes at this service. 35 minutes. Now, if you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Bible church person who's coming into Anglicanism, that's a short warm-up length sermon. But for Anglicans, that's like an eternity. 35 minutes. I had a guy who came up to me after the service and said, thank you, pastor. That, that, that sermon changed my life. I was a brand new man when I woke up. <laughs> but the point is, it's a short message. Five words in Hebrew, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And yet look at the effect. A whole city is converted by this message. It's a short message, but it packs a punch because what it's announcing is disaster, overturned. The destruction is coming. It's the same word overturned that's used in Genesis chapter 19 to refer to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a real word, and it's hard to hear that God comes into our lives and says, I'm going to confront you with something. I'm going to confront you with disaster that is coming. And here's the problem for us, folks. Though we may not delight in this message, we are not going to deny it because we know in our bones it's true. And I'm not just talking about church folks. I'm talking about everybody. Every human being has got a sense Something deep within us that says there's something desperately gone wrong in this world. And if I'm honest, it's something that's desperately gone wrong in me. And if I continue in this direction, disaster is imminent. We know it. I mean, I saw this last week. I got invited to a hockey game. Uh, it, I was so excited because, as many of you know, up until a few days ago, sad, uh, the Dallas Stars were still in the running for the Stanley Cup. I went to a conference final game. I'd never been to a conference final. That's not the actual Stanley Cup final. It's the series before. I was so excited to have a real ticket. A parishioner said, I've got an extra ticket. You can come. He said, do you want to come? I said, I will sell my children to come to this game. It's, I'm, I'm in. So, I mean, I came to the game and it was wonderful. And the Dallas Stars were so bad 
so bad that I was seriously considering shifting my allegiances. I mean, it, they played so bad, the fans were throwing garbage on the ice. That's okay, I grew up in Vancouver, and when they lost the Stanley Cup, the whole city rioted. So, you know, we've got a bad reputation as hockey fans. But the point being, it was so bad. But here's what I loved about the game. I loved the fact that my friend, the parishioner, who invited me to the game, did not introduce me to his friends at the game as his pastor. Thanks be to Jesus. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. When you go to a game like this or a social setting and they introduce you as the pastor, everyone gets so weird. They get so weird once they find out you're a minister. They, they, they start going through their mind of all the inappropriate jokes they've said up to the moment they found out you were a pastor. They start apologizing every time they swear. They start hiding their whiskey bottles. It just gets really, really weird. But the reason it happens is because every single one of us as human beings has a sense there is something wrong in us. And when even a small reminder that there is a God in heaven, that there is a divinity, that there is a holiness and a sacredness in this world, even when we're reminded by simply someone being a minister of the gospel, walking in the room, everybody goes weird because we know that we are on a path towards destruction. God confronts. He confronts us as Ninevites living in Nineveh. He confronts us. We know that we're Ninevites. We know it. You know, it's interesting, the character from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which is actually based on the book of Jonah, one of the characters, Ishmael, in there, who's kind of a sort of more religious character in the book, Ishmael at one point, speaking of the general sort of universal sinfulness of humanity, churched and unchurched, he has a great moment where he says, heavens have mercy on us. Pagans or Presbyterians alike, we are all somehow cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. And that's so true. Heaven have mercy on us all. Pagans, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Planoites alike. We are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. We're Ninevites and we know it. In the words of Psalm 51 verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. We are confronted in Nineveh. But thanks be to God, it's for, for good. It's for our good. Because what we see in Jonah chapter 3 is not just that God confronts us as Ninevites living in Nineveh, but that he does it not to condemn us, but to change us. See, we often think that this confrontation from God, that God's word coming in and confronting us about our sin is meant to destroy us, meant to condemn us, but in fact, it's to change us. Look at verse four. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. That word overturned in the Bible doesn't just mean destruction. Actually, it's got a fuller meaning. It means more than just destruction. It means a destruction after which comes new life. That something is going to change after this destruction takes place. That there'll be a transformation. That there'll be a turning. That there'll be a change. It's the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 7 when Moses' staff is turned into a snake. 
or when the Nile waters are turned into blood, or Psalm 30, verse 11, where we're promised that our mourning shall be turned into dancing, or my favorite, 1 Samuel 10, where the newly anointed King Saul shall be turned into a different kind of man. This word overturned is not a word of condemnation, it's a word of hope, it's a word of transformation. It's a change. God is coming to change us, to change these Ninevites. You know, in the Bible, we have a word for change that we often use in religious circles especially. We talk about repentance, right? You've heard about that? Let's repent. It means to change. In the Greek, it's the word metanoia. It means to make a U-turn. It means a different direction. And oftentimes, though, it's misunderstood. We think of repentance, the call of repentance, the call to change our ways as this word of condemnation rather than a word of grace, a word of opportunity, that you are going in the wrong direction and you don't need to be going this way. You are going in the wrong route, but it's not too late for you. That there is a second chance and a tenth chance and a hundredth chance and a thousandth chance before God to turn around and live a different way. You see, repentance means more than just feeling bad about your sin, right? Verse 5, we're told that the people of Nineveh, they call for a fast and they put on sackcloth. And those are signs of humility and repentance. They're feeling bad about their sins. But more is required than just feeling bad. A change must occur. As the king of Nineveh will say in verse 8, later in the chapter, will say to them, every man must turn from his evil ways. That repentance is not just about feeling bad about our sin. Oh, we've always had, all had friends in our lives, people in our lives who, you know, they keep saying sorry for something, but they just don't change. Like, that's not repentance. That's not gospel change. What's being promised here is an actual changed way of life. You know, our dog, Tiggy, Tiggy is really good at feeling bad about his sins. Like he is just so good at being ashamed. I mean, when we'll come in the door, I mean, I know I tell lots of stories about Tiggy, but you know, he's getting old. So the day will come when there'll be no more Tiggy stories. So you're stuck with a lot of Tiggy stories. That was really depressing, wasn't it? Okay, well, carrying on. Um, Tiggy, when we come home, Tiggy will sometimes often be already cowering underneath the, couch or the, the, the table or the chairs. And, he, and he's just got this sort of shaking look on his, you know, and, and, and you know instantly that he's done something disgusting and abominable, and he knows it. And, and it's just, he's so good at showing his shame to the point where we have some fun with it sometimes. We'll say to him, Tiggy, be ashamed. And he'll just go off and show us what shame looks like. But here's the problem. Tiggy feels deep shame about his sin, but then he goes on and does the same disgusting thing the next day. He never changes. Oh, how much I'm like my dog some days. We feel bad about what we've done but we just keep doing it. That's not gospel repentance. That's not gospel transformation. Gospel transformation is the gift that God has come into our lives and said, I'm gonna make a way for you to live a different way. Yes, it begins with confrontation because something has to die, but it's so that new life can be born, a new way. It's not too late. You're not too far gone. There is still time to turn around. You know, biblical repentance and transformation, I think, looks the best like this. This is, I think, the best imagery of the gift of repentance, the gift of a changed life, of a changed way. 
Repentance, biblical repentance, the gift of it looks like this. It's like a man walking down a street who comes up upon an open manhole in the street and to get around it walks around the left side of it but manages to slip and fall right in that manhole. Well, the second day, the man walks down the same street, comes up to the open manhole, says, this time I'm going to do it differently, walks the right side of the manhole, but still manages to slip and fall into the manhole. The third day, the man walks down the same street, comes up to the open manhole, gets all his strength to jump over the manhole, still manages to fall backwards into the manhole. On the fourth day, the man takes a different street. That's repentance. That's the gift that God is bringing to Ninevites living in Nineveh. You're not too far gone. It's not too late. You can take a different street. In my power, you can take a different way. You can live different lives. And this is, in fact, the character of God. And Jonah knows it. Jonah knows that it is always God's intention not to bring his confrontation to condemn, but to change and transform. Jonah knows this. In fact, next week when we get to chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah's going to make his complaint to God and say, see, you're so gracious and loving. This is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I didn't want to go to the city of my enemies. This is the capital of Assyria, the sworn enemy of the Jews. This is Israel's enemy. And Jonah says, I don't want to go there because I know what you're going to do. You're going to get me to go there. I'm going to preach a message of confrontation. And guess what? They're going to be changed by it because that's what you do again and again, God. You are a God of grace and mercy, forgiving sins. And Jonah's absolutely right. That's exactly who God is and who God always is. This is his character. As Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, God does not desire the death of sinners. Oh, how the world needs to hear that. God does not desire the death of sinners, but rather that sinners would turn from their wickedness and live. This is the heart of God. This is why he confronts, not to condemn, but to change us living in Nineveh. But thanks be to God, the hope here is not only that as Ninevites living in Nineveh, that God confronts us about our destructive pathways in order to change us, to give us that gift of repentance, that grace of new life. But look at how he does it. He does it by coming to Nineveh. He comes to where we are, to where we live. He enters our cities, our homes, our neighborhoods, our lives. He comes to us. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says that the whole city, from the greatest to the least, enters into this repentance. The whole city of pagans is saved. It's an incredible conversion. It's an incredible transformation. And you have to say, how did it happen? Well, on the one hand, you could say it's the power of the message, right? God's word has power. Isaiah 55, as the rain falls down from heaven and waters the earth, producing bread for the sower and, and bread, uh, seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so goes forth my word, he says. It will not return to be empty. It will accomplish the purpose for which I send it. There is power in the message, but there's also the presence of the messenger, it doesn't come from afar. It's not a book that falls from heaven. It's not a thing communicated from a high off mountain somewhere. No, the messenger comes right into the middle of the city. Let me put it this way. What's the greatest miracle here in chapter three? Or what's the greatest shock 
of chapter three of Jonah? Is it the shock, the miracle of a city full of pagans converting? Or is it the shock that there would be a prophet of Israel who would walk a day's journey on his own into the midst of a city full of his enemies and would bring there a message of transformation? That's the miracle of Jonah chapter three. I mean, I don't know about you, but if someone's mean to me, I am done with them tomorrow. Jonah walks into the midst of a city of enemies, walks a whole day's journey into the heart of it alone to speak a word of change and transformation. That's the miracle. Now, who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Remember I said earlier, I'm not Jonah and you're not Jonah. Well, guess what? In this case, Jonah's not really Jonah either. This story is actually pointing to someone else, isn't it? His name begins with a J as well. Jesus, yes, there we go, Jesus, right? Remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, I've referenced each week we've been looking at Jonah. Jesus speaks of this Jonah story with reference to his own life. In fact, he says, for our purposes today, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, he says, on the last day, the people of Nineveh will stand up and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then he says, and something greater than Jonah is here. See, this story of the one who would leave his home and take a long journey into the midst of enemy territory and would stand there at complete personal cost to himself to declare a message of salvation, that story is nothing less than the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, it's Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday, I'm not preaching on the Trinity, don't worry. I always warn my younger clergy as they go out in the world all excited to enter into the church here. I said, just be careful when you get to Trinity Sunday because you'll be so tempted to try to explain the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. And up to that point, you will be a totally orthodox, wonderfully biblically grounded Christian, and then you will try to explain the Trinity and you may well preach heresy that Sunday. It's hard to explain in a sermon. We wait for Dr. Bales to return and he can explain the Trinity. But the point is, the doctrine of the Trinity, which we celebrate and receive by faith today, three persons, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community, a community of faith, a community of love, co-equal, co-divine, equal in divinity, equal in eternity, and yet amongst this amazing community of God, the Godhead, the Son, chose to leave all of that and to be born of a woman and to enter into flesh, to move into enemy territory to those who had all rejected him in order that he could bring that message of transformation. And it was a message that was gonna get him killed. But in doing so, would bring us life. This Jonah story is the story of Jesus. The one who goes into the midst of enemy territory for us. He, he comes for us. You know, in every other religion, I know I say this all the time, but it's true. In every other religion, every other worldview, every other ideology that is offering you salvation, it's always a story of you having to go on a journey and do something and make something happen. And whether it's actually some kind of religious salvation or it's just some ideology that's going to get you your best beach body now, 
no matter what it is, you've got to go and take hold of it. You've got to go on a quest. You've got to go on a journey. You've got to make yourself a better person and make something happen and finally attain that salvation you've been looking for. And it is only in Jesus that salvation comes to us in the midst of our muck of Nineveh. It is only Jesus who comes and enters us where we are and meets us in our pain and our suffering and our losses. Uninvited, the people of Nineveh were not having a prayer meeting. Oh Lord, would you come down and speak to us? No, they were happily in their paganism and God entered into their midst to save them at his own great cost. He left his father's throne above so free so in fun that his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free. But oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all, immense and free. But oh my God, it found out me. He left the throne and came to Nineveh for you. He came for you. Now, I don't know about you, but every week, even we Ninevites who've been saved, we fall back into our Ninevite ways. Every week we're tempted to go back and find ourselves back in Nineveh, back in those Ninevite ways. But here's the hope. That same son of God, Jesus Christ, stands still in the midst of Nineveh. Did you not hear the words of the gospel that Ken and Tony read a moment ago, that promise Jesus gives at the ascension? And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is why we come to church. The church is not up on some mountain away from all the destruction of the world. It's not in some pure, holy place far away. The church is built right in the middle of Nineveh because that's where we find our Lord. And every week, as we fall back in our Ninevite ways, we hear the Lord yet again speaking his message over to us, confronting us, but confronting us for change, calling us to repentance. And every week, he shows us the signs of the cost of that redemption as he gathers us in his church right here in the midst of Nineveh. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Friends, is there hope for Ninevites? Is there hope for you and me? Is there hope for the Ninevites that we love? There's so much hope. Look at Jonah 3. God confronts the Ninevites in order to change us. And he's done it by coming to Nineveh. Is there hope? There is so much hope for Wherever we may find ourselves, whatever desperation we may be in, however pagan we may have become, in Nineveh, behold the good news. Something greater than Jonah is right here. 
for he is the one who will leave the 99 and come for that lost sheep. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.